Well, good morning, everyone. It's a delight to be uh, here again with you. I'd like to begin this morning uh, just with a question. Have you ever had to unlearn a story to learn the story? <laughs> we all have had some experience of that, I think. I'll give you a couple of historical examples. Uh, we've all been taught, I would guess, uh, and I guess they still teach this in some places, uh, that uh, George Washington, when he was young, cut down his father's cherry tree. Have you, have you heard that story? Yeah, actually it's no story. Uh, a writer named Weems wrote that and made it up. It is not true. You may also know, and everyone does, I'm sure, that in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue and was the first to discover America. Is that true? Well, no. The Vikings beat him just by about 500 years. They discovered the Americas 500 years before uh, Columbus did. Uh, a slight error in judgment uh, on that. So that is not true. So at this time of the year, there's a little something I'd like to help you with to unlearn that you might learn the true story. Uh, and that is to, uh, a particular carol uh, that's taken from uh, Matthew's gospel. Uh, and that carol is We Three Kings. So we're going to look at Matthew and compare that with the carol. And hopefully you're going to learn the true story by unlearning what this carol tells us. So let's do some unlearning together. First of all, uh, we are told uh, uh, with this carol that three kings have made this visit to visit Jesus. True? Well, no. Matthew's gospel tells us they were wise men. Uh, they were probably almost certainly not kings. Wise men, yes. Kings, no. Not true. Second, we are told uh, that the uh, people that came numbered three, correct? Three uh, kings come in the, in the carol to visit Jesus. Uh, we, don't, uh, we don't know how many there were actually. Uh, we know there are more than one because it says wise men. It is in the plural, so we know there's more than one. Uh, the carol is based on uh, the gifts that were brought, and there were three gifts that were brought. Therefore, the carol writer says that there were three kings that brought them. Uh, well, we don't know exactly how many brought those three gifts. Certainly more than one, and there could have been more than three. So that is actually the truth of the story. Fourth, when you see uh, paintings or pictures or drawings of the manger scene, or you see live nativity scenes, uh, we always see uh, those wise men there in many of those pictures and drawings. Were they there at the manger? Well, no, they weren't. Because we learn uh, from Matthew's gospel uh, that they did not come to a manger uh, in a stable uh, when Jesus was a baby. They came, it says, to a house when he was a child. Uh, so they were not, in fact, coming to see a baby Jesus, uh, but they came to see a child who had been born as many as two or three years before. Uh, they had been journeying that time. Uh, we don't know exactly when it started, but we know because of what Herod did, who uh, asked those wise men to come back and tell him uh, where they found Jesus in their journey, and they did not come. He was infuriated, and out of his fury, uh, he killed all the male children two years of age and younger. Uh, so we understand from that story that it's likely Jesus is at least two years old in that visit. So let's look at what Matthew says, uh, in many ways in contrast uh, with the carol, 
And I'm going to read Matthew 2, 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, the wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come up to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. In you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it arose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw a child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasure, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. We're going to look here this morning that the king of the Jews has come. You'll see this in your bulletin if you have one. The king is announced by the star first. Secondly, he's prophesied by Micah. And the king is encountered by wise men. Let me pray for us, and we'll look at these three points. Father, we thank you for your uh, own glory and for the purposes of our own growing and building up. You've put this account in Matthew's gospel. Lord, there are things to be learned there for us, and we pray that you would give us a tender heart to your spirit who wishes to teach us how this affects the way that we live how it affects our relationship with you, how it affects our relationship with him who is born king of the Jews. So Lord, we pray that you would settle our hearts from maybe the anxieties and concerns of last week or the coming week. And today, Lord, give us a quietness before you. Be our teacher. Give us an honesty about ourselves with you that this story will bring out in us today. In Christ's name, amen. Well, first of all, then, that the king of the Jews has come was announced by a star. So when you read just the very beginning of this story, uh, that you have, I would imagine, two key questions. Who in the world were these wise men? And secondly, how do you explain this star that somehow is able to move? Who are the wise men? What's the star? What is the deal with this star? Let's look, first of all, then, who in the world are these wise men? Uh, we get our word in our English language, magician, from what they're, uh, what they're actually called in the scriptures, magi. So we get our word magician from that word. So there's actually only one word in the original text, and that is that word, magician. They were considered at their time to be scholars. They often informed and counseled kings. They were thought very much of. They were experts in astronomy and practitioners of sorcery and wizardry. 
We can only guess. So where in the east they came from, we don't know for sure. The carol says they came from the Orient, and to be fair, anything east of the Mediterranean at the time this carol was written could have been considered the Orient, but most often we think of the Orient as anything uh, that enters into China and east beyond that all the way to the ocean on the east side of that land. They most certainly were not from uh, the east as far as China. But they could have been, uh, and most people guess that they were probably from what was called Babylonian that day, uh, in that day, uh, but today is considered to be called Iraq. Or even further east from that, some scholars think that's where they were from, and that would be Iran. Uh, in that day called Persia. So either from current day Iraq or Iran is where they came from as wise men. So how do you explain then the movement of the star? Well very simply put there is no astronomical explanation of the star. Although many scholars have tried to explain uh, that star by using astronomical events that were surrounding that time. The main problem is you can't have an astronomical event that lasts as long as it took them to make their way to Jerusalem. So there aren't astronomical explanations for the star. So more than likely it was of supernatural origin. We don't have any greater explanation than probably that. And I know that for some of you that not just that kind of thing in the Bible but other things that seem to be supernatural causes you problems and that's understandable why it might. So what do you do with things like that, including the star? Well, first of all, that the God uh, in the scriptures uh, is not restricted by science. He is the Lord of science. So the key question is, is God able, not does science allow this? Is God able, not does science allow it? And then secondly, the scriptures, when they give us supernatural events, don't tell us how that supernatural event took place. It just tells us what happened. There is not a how given most normally, but the what is given us. This is what happened supernaturally. That's probably what we see in the star. So Matthew's gospel, his entire gospel, is a gospel to tell to the Jews that the Messiah has come. That's why he writes his gospel. And he tells us in that gospel that it has been announced not just to the Jews, but it's been announced to the nations. So that's why we see here God choosing these astrologers and these sorcerers to come to the King Jesus that they might worship him. So we need to think about this. If the King Jesus can come to these men as they come to visit him, if he can encounter them, is there anyone in all the world that he cannot encounter? Is there anyone beyond the reach of the Messiah? And the answer is no. No one is beyond the reach of the Messiah. If he can reach out to common, ordinary folk like shepherds who are the off-scarring of society in Luke's Gospel, and if they can come to these magicians, these astrologers and sorcerers in Matthew's Gospel, no one is beyond the reach of Jesus called here in Matthew's Gospel the King of the Jews. The King is announced by the star. Secondly, the King is prophesied by Micah. He's prophesied by Micah. 
So when these wise men come uh, to worship the Lord Jesus Christ, this King of the Jews, there was probably a great deal of pomp and circumstance in them coming into Jerusalem. Uh, their typical costumes would have been, uh, as we see in some pictures today, cone-shaped hats that they probably wore. That's what they wore even during that time. That they probably did not come on camels. They probably came on Arabia horses uh, or perhaps Persian steeds. That's probably what they were riding. And it was probably a long uh, and very, very well-numbered uh, troop that was with them because as they went through Roman territory for their protection, there probably was some sort of military accompaniment in their journey. So they arrive into Jerusalem like that. And wherever they go, the account we read says they had one question. Where is he who was born king of the Jews? They're asking everyone as they ride into Jerusalem in all their glory and with the powerful display of power with the army that was with them, looking for he who was born king of the Jews. So King Herod hears that these guys have come from the east on their steeds or stallions, dressed in their array as magicians, asking that question, and that king is bothered by news of another king that may have been born. So he asks to meet with them. So they're gathered into the court of the king, and he makes that inquiry about who is it they're looking for. And so they tell him uh, that he is prophesied by the star they saw, and so he calls together the religious leaders and asks, Do their, does their understanding of the Old Testament account for what these magicians are looking for? And they say yes. Matter of fact, Micah 5.2 says, From Bethlehem shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So the place that they need to go to is Bethlehem. That's where this king would come from. Now here's what I want you to take a look at with me. I want you to notice the responses of Herod and the religious leaders compared to the responses or the response of these astrologers, these wise men. How do they compare in contrast to this king of the Jews? First of all, what was the response to the wise men? Well, in verse 2 we're told, we have come to worship the king. And in fact, when they come into his presence, that's what they do. They worship him. We'll look at that a little bit more later. So what is their sense when they are looking for this king? And when they actually see him, what is their response? Their major response is that they're awed. They are awed that this king has been born. And eventually they come into the presence of the king. So because they're awed, what do they do? They worship they worship him. So what they are saying is that Jesus is of ultimate significance to us. He is of ultimate significance to us because they're awed and they worship him. That's how the wise men responded. So what about Herod and what about the chief priests and the scribes? What is their response to this King Jesus? What was Herod's response? Well, he asked them to come back and visit him so that he will know whether, in fact, the king of the Jews was discovered in Bethlehem. 
What was his intention in doing that? He told them so he could worship with them. Yeah, right. <laughs> because when they didn't return his way and went another way, he was angry. And we read later in this same passage, we didn't read it today, but later on in verse 16, it talks about where I mentioned earlier that he went on a rampage and killed all the male children two years of age and younger because they were what to him? They were a threat to him. The wise men were awed by him. Herod was threatened by him. So he was compelled to eliminate him. That's what he was compelled to do. Jesus to him was of consequential significance to him. Not like the wise men where Jesus was of ultimate significance to them. What about the chief priests and the scribes? Now, listen to what it says. It says, and after listening to the king, the wise men went on their way. But here's what it doesn't say. But it's implied. After listening to the king, the wise men went on their way without the chief priests and the scribes. So here we have a report that this Messiah has been born. He has given a star. It will lead them to where he lives that he might be worshipped. So this long-awaited Messiah is what these magicians are describing. These religious leaders should be what on hearing that news? Really? Wonderful. Hey, can, can we come along and just kind of tag along in the back? We'd like to see this. No, they, they, don't, they don't go. They don't go. Are you guys idiots? I mean, if this fulfillment is being hand, hand given to them today of this Messiah born, King of the Jews, they would beg, they would pay to go to see this. They do not. So why? Because the chief priests and the scribes are indifferent to Jesus. They're indifferent. So because they're indifferent, they're compelled to ignore him. They're going to ignore him. He has of no significance to their existence. No significance. See ya. Have a good journey. Yeah, hope you find him. Maybe. We'll see you. Maybe we'll see you later. That is how these different people responded to King Jesus. So the scriptures tell us that all that who are threatened by Jesus or indifferent to Jesus, there will come a day, if that is their lifelong response to, 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 to the Lord Jesus Christ, that there comes a day for them of not great joy, but of eternal judgment. That's the sobering thing about the coming of the Messiah. For those who belong to him, it's a story of great joy. For those who ignore him, and for those who are threatened by him, then their consequence eternally is not good. Jesus said in John 12, 48, the one who rejects me and does not receive my sayings as a judge. The word that I have spoken will be as judge on the last day. I love what C.S. Lewis says about that judgment. He says this. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, your will be done. And those to whom God says, your will be done they will only get what they have concluded, what they have sought for in how they live. They will get that. 
it will be given them a life of eternity without the king, without the Lord, without salvation. It will be lost. But for those who give themselves to that Lord and king, then God will grant them the reward of life eternal. The king of the Jews has come, is announced by a star, is prophesied by Micah, and is encountered by wise men. Let's look at how this encounter takes place. First of all, the wise men rejoiced. Now, I want you to look at this. This is a rejoicing of quadruple proportion. Four times of normal rejoicing is how they responded. It says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So here's what Matthew says. They rejoiced. Uh, not, not just that, they rejoiced exceedingly. Uh, and not just that, they rejoiced with joy. And, and not just that, they rejoiced exceedingly with joy, with great joy. A quadruple rejoicing. They were out of their minds. You've seen, like me, haven't you, a little clips of publishers' clearinghouse that appears on people's doors with their $1 million, whatever it is, and how people respond. I mean, they just go nuts, don't they? Ah! You know, they put their hands up and they yell and they're kind of running in place. Ah! And they go back and forth. They are doing what these wise men did when they saw Jesus. They rejoiced exceedingly, with joy, greatly. Quadruple joy. The wise men rejoiced. Secondly, they fell down and worshipped him. They placed themselves beneath the king. <laughs> they placed themselves beneath the king. Because that king had rightful authority over them. He was the king. They acknowledged that everything about themselves compared to the king amounted to nothing. They were nothing in comparison to this king. He was Lord over all. They rejoiced. They fell down and they worshipped him. And they offered him gifts. It says they opening their treasures, they offered him gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now a lot of scholars will make a whole lot about what each gift means. And I, I, I would think that perhaps that's true. Maybe that's the point of the story, but I don't think so. I think the bottom line is that they gave gifts that were fitting for a king. They gave gifts, extravagant gifts, that were fitting, that were fit for a king. So, don't we have to ask ourselves that question about ourselves? Do we give gifts to the king that are fitting for the king? About three years ago, we moved from East Nashville, where we were living, to Goodlettsville. And, uh, in that move, you know, you go through this whole purge routine, right? I can't tell you how many trips I took to the Goodwill dock across the street from where we lived in East Nashville. I took loads and loads and loads of things I did not want. And I thought I would probably be finished with that job, then I'd discover more things, I'd take another load. And then a week later, I'd take, I'd take another load. I mean, I took countless loads of stuff that I no longer wanted and gave it to goodwill. Is that what we do? 
Does the king only get the things that we don't want? Or does he get the most important things that belong to us? So when I say things or to give, I don't just mean material things, although it may include that. I mean everything that we are. Everything about us. Does Jesus, the king of the Jews, does he have Lord over everything? Or just the things we don't want? Or the things we don't care about? He should have lordship over everything, including the things that we love the most. Is he lord of that? Your best time? Your best money? Your best relationships? Your best fill-in-the-blank? Is he lord of that too? He desires to be. Abraham Kuyper, a theologian uh, and prime minister of the Netherlands in 1901 to 1905, says this. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Did you hear that? There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. This king of the Jews deserves everything, including our best. We give him gifts that are fit for a king. The king is announced by the star, he's prophesied by Micah, and he's encountered by the wise men. So what does this mean for us today? So what? Why this story? Well, many people will read the story, uh, and a lot of uh, theologians and scholars will write, that we need to understand the main theme here is that we need to be like the wise men. We give our lives in search of this king to experience him, to rejoice over him, uh, and to be a people uh, that search like they did. We should search because they give us the example of searching. We search and find for this king of the Jews. Well, that, that might be one of the important lessons here, but I'm not convinced it's the most important lesson. I'm not, I'm not convinced that the most important lesson has something to do with another word in this prophecy by Micah. Let me read you that part again. From Bethlehem, Micah prophesied, from Bethlehem shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. I, I wonder if that part of him being a shepherd is the most important thing about this story. So he's, a, he's a shepherd king. That the story is not about the wise men and what we are to do. It's about the shepherd and what he came to do for us. To seek and to save the lost. Maybe that's the theme of the story. How we respond to him. Not what we are to do for him. Maybe that's the story. Because this shepherd came, came not to ascend an earthly throne. He came to ascend a rugged cross. And over his head was nailed this word that this is the king of the Jews. Put there mockingly, but a great deal of truth spoken by what was put over his head. In his gospel, John quotes Jesus to have said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. 
That's perhaps the main theme of the story, of what he came to do for us. This good shepherd who would come and bear the sins of his flock, bear the sins of his own flock, that he might seek and save and rejoice over them. That's why he came. Luke shares in his gospel three parables about Jesus the shepherd king. And Jesus the shepherd king taught these parables. The third parable is the most well-known, the parable of the prodigal son. The second parable is the parable of the lost coin. And the next parable is the parable of the lost sheep. Remember those three parables? They're all about things lost. And I think it has a good message for us as it relates to Matthew 2. Let me read that last of those three parables about the shepherd king. Luke 15, let me read this to you. This is the first of the, of the, of the parables. He told them a parable that a man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over the one sinner who repents and over the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So let's think about this a little bit. The shepherd king leaves the 99 to search for the one that's lost. This shepherd king that the wise men want to was going to become a shepherd to the whole world. And to those who are members of his lost sheep, he is going to look for them. He will look for you if you belong to him. He will look for you. He is committed to do that for his flock. And then secondly, he will find you. Jesus always finds those for whom he looks. He will find you. He will not lose you. And he will put you on his shoulders and carry you home. That shepherd king is committed to you if you are a member of his flock. And then what does he do? He throws a party. <laughs> he rejoices over you. Yes, the wise men did rejoice over the shepherd. But it doesn't come close to the rejoicing that the shepherd has about his sheep that he has found and brought home. They throw a party. A party of parties. It reminds us of Zephaniah 3.17, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. This shepherd will write a song about you and rejoice over you. Like the love songs you hear on radio over and over again, he will write a love song about his love for you and he will sing over you. Don't you look forward to the day when you'll hear that? His song made about you because he loves you. Rejoicing that he sought you and found you and brought you home and threw a ringer of a party to rejoice over you. That's the shepherd king. I think maybe that is the main theme of the story. If we understand what I just told you about the shepherd king, won't we have quadruple rejoicing like they did? Isn't that what Christmas is about? About rejoicing that the shepherd king came for us? 
So what is this kind of rejoicing we're to have? Well, I put it in your bulletin. I'm going to quote this. You can follow with me. I'll quote the notes. You may not have that, but let me read it to you. This is what Tim Keller, in his book, Counterfeit God, says about what, is to, what does it mean to rejoice. He says, to rejoice is to treasure a thing, to assess its value to you, to reflect on its beauty and importance until your heart rests in it and taste the sweetness of it. Rejoicing is a way of praising God, listen, until the heart is sweetened and rested and until it relaxes its grip on anything else it thinks it needs. Isn't why the shepherd king, isn't that why he's come? That we, upon knowing and seeing and understanding his love for us, would relax our grip on anything that we think can provide us what only he can provide us. That's why I think of many reasons why, but I think that's the main reason why we have this story of the wise men. Let me pray for us. Lord, I know for me, and just preparing uh, this sermon, how convicted I am that I'm not sure I experience that kind of rejoicing as I ought. Lord, I don't exalt over the fact that you looked for me, and you found me, and you brought me home, and now you sing over me. Lord, would we let that truth cause us to rejoice exceedingly, to have quadruple rejoicing at what the shepherd king has done for us, your sheep. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you that you ascended the cross, that you might bear my sin, that you might make me, you might make us yours eternally. In your name, amen.